Aloha Maui. Hey, this is The Solar Coaster with Josh and Jay. This is episode 153. Jay, what are we talking about uh, today? We're still here. We're talking about getting off the planet because it's getting dangerous down here. <laughs> no, not, not, not. <laughs> we well, got another why, option. Why we can't, basically. Well, we recorded this episode, this, uh, this interview actually a while back. Uh, and, you know, he is an astrobiologist and a really interesting guy. And, you know, I think we were sitting there saying, what kind of conversations do we have to have? Well, we should really understand why guys, why all these billionaires like Bezos and Musk are out there trying to figure out how to uh, how to get over to Mars and do other things in the solar system. And is it actually a, uh, a plan B? All right. Hey, folks, we are the Solar Coaster. We are a renewable energy theme talk show right here in lovely Maui County. It can be found Fridays at 105 p.m. on Ko'oi, 1110 a.m. Also, some FM stations, 96.7 FM Central Maui, 96.5 FM Westside, 98.7 FM Upcountry. www.solar-coaster.com is where you can listen live if you're outside of our broadcast area. Get all the old shows, which is really, really important if you're interested in renewable energies or technology in any facet therein. Uh, chances are we've talked about it by now. And just go to the website, solar-coaster.com, hit on, hit, click on the podcast link, and uh, you can get our entire back catalog. Uh, you can also get in there on the mailing list. I've received a few questions even this week asking how we can get into solar and renewables in the current climate. Uh, we will get to those questions directly, so they come right to us. And if you have a question you can't get on the air, uh, send it to us. Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart all carry the solar coaster. Just search solar coaster and look for our little orange and blue waveform logo. There you go. We did get some emails this week. The uh, CEO of the Ark of Maui uh, was looking for some information on how to handle his solar system. Mm -hmm. We'll give you a shout as soon as we can uh, to support. Uh, we do have some great sponsors out there. Fairwinds Wealth Management. Brian Thomas is not on the on the show today, but he has been a tremendous support over the last six months. And also really interesting time to have had a wealth manager on the show, Jay. You know, uh, getting a sense of what uh, this all meant. We, we saw this ramp up and he was talking at the peak of the market about how things were inflated and ready for a, a, a pop. And I certainly didn't know why, but we, we had it. And then how we handled that downward trajectory of the markets. You know, I was talking to this guy pretty much every day, getting my, my value out of him. And it was really an education. So I really recommend talking to Brian Thomas of Fairwinds Wealth Management. Good guy. And he'll very give it to anybody. And can yeah. support. He will. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Endura Shield and Perfectly Clear Glass. That's Gary Dolberg here in Maui. Now, uh, Enduro Shield's an Australian company making a coating uh, for glass that prevents etching and creates a better longevity, better, better visibility for that uh, piece of glass. But it can also work with solar panels. And that is going to, in a scenario where you would start to reduce the amount of debris and soil that gets on those panels and create more energy over time. So we're testing that on my house. We're testing that in other environments. And uh, really excited to learn more about the data when that pops in and we can actually see it. But it's uh, something that's super cool. And I love to see Technology like that emerging right here in Maui, Jay. You know, that's uh, perfectly clear glass with local Gary Dolzer. Uh, I want to, your local sponsor. There you go. Time for news and events, Jay. Absolutely. Okay. Woods McKenzie is actually slashing their global solar outlook for 2020. I mean, obviously, we've, we've had a lot of um, setbacks. <laughs> both domestically and globally uh, for, for both production and transportation of materials and, and just the ability to get out there and, and do work. Uh, it seems like we're right on the cusp. There's a lot of conversation about restarting certain areas of the country right now. Um, I'm personally hopeful that Hawaii is going to be one of the one of the early ones we can really start getting back to work. And there's a lot of articles right now about how solar will rebound very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of material still available. 
out there, panels, inverters and stuff are going to be available. And it's, and it's literally just a, mount, a matter of how we get out and work. Uh, can we get out and work? And, and, it's, and it's an outdoor activity for the most part. I mean, it's one guy or two guys um, generally at a relatively safe distance, except for the morning meetings, um, working on your roof, getting stuff done out in the open air. So it's, it's not too difficult, not too yep. difficult to do. Um, but they are slashing estimates for, glo- for um, global uh, installed capacity this year is going to be down 23 gigawatt, which, which is a significant number. That's, that's 23 nuclear power plants worth of, <laughs> worth of energy, right? It's a, well, I mean, for sure, you know, we're going to, we, I think you had to expect uh, some revisions in these earlier estimates and GTM, they're holding a series of, of events over the, I just signed up for one tomorrow, actually, to kind of give an overview of what's happening. You know, of course, it, it certainly is possible to install, as we get to know this 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 beast better and understand what we can and cannot do, uh, you know, I think we will see the construction start again. We'll see people become more comfortable with the standards and practices and how to do it safely. Uh, you know, and then that'll, that'll go across probably each of the sectors. You know, I, I, frankly, I haven't really sat in on many of those meets yet. So I don't know what those, uh, you know, protocols look like yet. And when it comes to sales, that's interesting too, because you know, I always felt like the solar industry was kind of in this archaic, you know, door knocking yeah. game that really just need and the residential side, of course, you know, and that just needed to change. And Tesla took a shot at that right over the last year. And they were like, you know, this, this, this game is done. We're going to sell it in, in blocks. It's going to be a b c you're going to simply sign up online and we're going to cut out those soft costs and get that cost of client acquisition down considerably uh it'd be really interesting to see if that model takes shape and i think it probably will have to some version of that remote selling remote sign up has got to kind of be part of the uh the 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 re-ramp of the industry after this all kind of quiets down so i'm really kind of excited in a sense to see how that goes there was just a lot of waste in that process that's just my personal opinion no absolutely i agree with that i've, I've seen it firsthand as you guys have yeah. rolled around over the years um and it, it, it reminds me of like amway <laughs> honestly oh. you know, around selling 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 stuff door to door the the vacuum cleaner sales and there's the lady of the house at home um you know it, it <laughs> doesn't it's it, we don't live in that world anymore everybody's online right. shopping and and i think this is you're, you're absolutely right this is going to put the spurs to it there you go that could be a, a really positive uh step that could actually shift costs in, in a favorable direction uh i like it i really do which one did we want to try to squeeze in before we get into our call with lynn well, we, have, we have a farm farming conversation real quick is that, that we've talked about this before is that that there's a lot of talk right now about after this whole covid 19 thing blows over uh, we're going to be kind of entering a new world we've had a lot of farm uh farmers having issues uh, with production and or transportation stuff rotting right, on the vine right. because they can't transport it unbelievable uh, that type of stuff but we're talking about a lot more local farming um and, and getting stuff closer there's, there's a couple of things going on one of course is that big article um in forbes about larry ellison and specifically what he's doing on lanai with these things how he's partnered with the trump white house and is is spurring a number of initiatives not just this this um, greenhouse, but they call it the Sensei Greenhouse, Sensei Farms, but um, the, the a, a tracking database for uh, infectious disease, which everybody in the nation can use, which is going to be really interesting to see pan out. Um, There's so many things that I like about this. Jay. First <laughs> of all, it's on Lanai. It's in Maui County. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you know when it's being described, it's a Forbes article, and they're talking about this island. Talking. 
talking about. They go through a history of Ellison when he was young, back in his 20s, and he heard about Lanai and how he was like, wouldn't it be neat to own an island one day? And then he, then he really tracked through the whole experience of him buying the island, investing in the island. And then now what's he doing out there? Well, of course, you have Manelli Bay. Of course, you have Coele. Everyone's kind of heard the the idea of the Sensei Lodge. And we think, oh, it's a it's a wellness retreat, and it's very expensive, and it's for the elite. That's kind of – and it's, it'd be easy to stop there. But in reality, it sounds like the way it's being described is more of a tech startup than a, a yeah, wellness he's, he's using those high-dollar values to fund the development of this big data. <laughs> enterprise big data greenhouse and and what and this i keep hearing this thing if we get food right this is not my language i heard this just in civil beat this last week if we get food right we can get the rest of it right so the thing is right now who's dying in this covid crisis people that have underlying health conditions obesity diabetes a series of these things where do those chronic diseases come from they come from lifestyle choices they come from a lack of good quality foods if you can create a, a, a why do why is that the case we have food deserts you know i mean if you just track it go all the way back you know and you look at that whole situation he's creating and a lot of other people are going after this too we saw these guys out at spi we saw them at ces we saw the uh Glugies, we saw the um uh, my foods we saw it, it, all these different guys out there trying to crack this kind of crack the puzzle and get the solution for the greenhouse with the, with energy that can work on an economic level anywhere you you place it whether it's in in Nairobi or in Oslo it'll work in every environment and you have a greenhouse right there that um, and I assume this is a big conversation with energy too, right? It seems well, like that's I mean, a big none, piece of none that of this puzzle. Stuff exists in isolation. I keep saying that over and over again and it, these need to be sustainable enterprises. He's talking about business being sustainable. He's talking about solar being sustainable and they all work together. So they actually have solar panels sticking up in between rows of crops, right? And that's, that's literally how it goes. Yeah, no, it's 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 really I'm excited because it feels like the the comprehensive conversation of energy. Energy is like this foundational component to it, but at the end of the day, the solution of what what you know, locally produced food can create. Think about it. You're no longer choosing food based on its ability to be distributed and shipped. Now you're choosing it based on its nutrient mm -hmm. density. Now you're choosing it based on its quality. And people have that in their communities, regardless of where you are in the world. I love this idea. I love the fact that it's happening in Lanai. And like you were saying, I think, uh, you know, Hawaii has something like the third lowest per capita uh, infection rate for COVID-19. We just heard a moment ago Trump talking about reopening in, in a kind of sta staggered way, reopening the economy. Uh, it could be that Hawaii is early on that list. We get a bump, start moving forward, kind of re reignite this economy. And this is the way I want to see this economy ignited. I want to see Hawaii with different types of organizations doing things like this. That's what I love. All right. So that being said, Jay, are you ready to go and talk to our yep, good friend, Lynn? All right. Welcome to the show, Ms. Lynn Tran from LG Ken. We're really excited to have you on the Solar Coaster again after some time. How are you today, Lynn? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. I started the week with an interesting call from Lynn uh, saying, hey, we've got all these masks from LG and looking for a home here in Hawaii. One about William Giese over at HSCA and Brian at Inter Inter Island Solar Supply. And we were able to distribute those. What's going on? Where did this? Uh, how did this all start, Lynn? Yeah, my team in headquarters, LG Chem, um, I, I know LG is a very big company, but LG Chem like literally called and was like, you know, what's going on? You guys don't even have toilet paper over there. Mm. You know, like, what can we do? We need to do something to be able to help our, you know, what? And, um, you know, the most logical thing was masks. 
you know, the logistically and whatnot. And we had a, a lot of issues getting them into the country. Um, but LG Chem dispersed globally uh, surgical masks as part of PPE protection for um, partners and customers. It's really interesting to think of our, you know, how our world is interconnected. Of course, uh, Korea, you know, went through a whole process of containing COVID-19. And so it's great to think that LG is the biggest company, I think, in, in Korea, if I'm not mistaken. And then it's wonderful to think that that's top of mind for LG Cam and for LG to be help to help its uh, installer network. So have you sent masks to other installers of the Resu product throughout the country? What's your overall game plan? Yeah, we reach out to our entire Resu network, all of our certified Resu installers that we work with, uh, made sure that they had adequate PPE or uh, anything that we could be doing to support from our side, and literally just started packaging up masks to have them sent out to wherever they could receive them. What was the total mask count that was sent? It was around 30,000 into North America. I would say about over 8,000 of them have literally come through my living room <laughs> <laughs> to, to get them dispersed because we couldn't receive them at the office. You know, it's really a cool story. And, you know, one of the things that I think that uh, Jason, of course, is in Japan right now. You're in NorCal and then I'm in uh, in Maui. And when we think about masks, it's only the last week or so that you could walk around Maui. I don't know about California and kind of not get sidewards glances. Right. And in Japan, of course, people use masks all the time. And, and that that notion in Japan about what a mask is, is, is on the outset, probably different from what Americans might think. You know, it's really about protect society from me when I'm wearing a mask. That's the big, the big thing. Right. And, and so uh, in, for, in Japan, Jay, are you seeing people wearing masks as much or more or the same as before? Uh, as, as you said, I mean, it's, it's very much, I, I don't want to be the one to propagate whatever disease is. I mean, it, they, they come, it comes around every year here where they just wear masks as a matter of course, uh, because of the typical yearly influenza. Right now I'm seeing between 70 to 80 percent of people on the street wearing masks. Yeah. Uh, I have been actually assaulted at one point by by a semi and crazy person telling me that I need to have a mask, even though I, I mean you you literally couldn't buy them. They were they they were you lined up in front of myriad drugstores, probably less than social distance <laughs> away, um, and and couldn't buy them. They they had one case per day and they sold out instantly, and there just wasn't enough to go around. So it's 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 gotten better now. We certainly have. Um, it's calmed down, I guess, is, is what I would want to say. And they've started shipping the reusable masks here, the ones you can actually wash and reuse for, for daily use instead of using all the disposables that we had. We don't have N95s or anything like that. It's just, They're just typical regular paper flat pack. Yeah. You know, uh, Lynn, we did a show with Will Giese of HSCA. There was really strong language from the CDC suggesting masks and locally suggesting masks. But over the course of the last couple of weeks, now we actually have mandates. You can't go into stores without masks. You have to actually, in Maui, right now, if you leave your house, you need to wear a mask. Uh, it's really changed, and, and it's great to know that that these resources are available. Like Jay was just saying, it's going to be tough to get a hold of these when we need them. The industry needs to be able to have access to these supplies in order to conduct their business now. So it's wonderful that LG and LG Cam have gone about you know, putting this together in such a timely way. So it looks like those masks are going to... Um, be uh, received by Inter-Island Solar Supply, Brian, CEO out there. When do you think they're going to get those? They are going to arrive Friday or Saturday this week, just two or three days. Fantastic. They're going to get picked up tomorrow. 
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, very good. Well, I, I before we, we sign off, though, I do want to give you an opportunity to give us some updates. We've had you on quite a bit in the past and seen you at all the trade shows, most recently at HSEA, actually back in November. What's going on with LG, LG Chem uh, and that great partnership of this well-known brand in the solar space? Uh, I understand you have some new uh, high-tech partners you're involved with. Yes, uh, it's been very exciting on our side. Um, most recently, we re-announced re uh, a partnership with SPAN. And so what a homeowner can get is, you know, the whole LG panels, the LG inverter, uh, the LG battery, and you get a whole home controlled whole home uh, backup uh, with the SPAN panel. So with everything together, the SPAN panel enables to have a home solar system, um, you know, give you the whole home backup, but with controls uh, for the homeowner. So it's available now. We're, we're going to market and it's definitely um, the right approach in terms of uh, home storage. Absolutely. Jay, how, how amazing is that? We met the SPAN guys, the CEO, yeah. Arch Rao, at Salt Lake and SPI, and you and I were both really stoked. Of course, we were already super stoked on the notion of load controls and how that and how these panels, how these smart panels can change the overall conversation of storage, specifically critical loads versus whole house and that kind of, guess, misnomer of that choice. In actuality, it's the smart panel that creates all that value and control in your house and during an outage and in other scenarios, too. Very, very cool. Jay, what do you oh, think, man? Ma massive props to LG for um, going out buying and then donating a tremendously necessary resource. And then uh, also talking to the span guys I mean, we did it's a tremendous product that it's really the only way to get a whole house back up to work properly without spending billions of dollars on batteries i love it i love the it. right approach it's the right approach if you're going to be having solar and, and storage on your home you really are uh replacing the utility you're displacing the utility and you want to be able to control all the power going on in your house, especially during an outage. So as consumers, we, we want that for our homes. And now we're gonna to go to our commercial break, coming right back with David Grinspoon, an American astrobiologist, a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. EnduroShield glass protection is the cost-effective way to help protect your PV investment, reduce cleaning needs, and help maximize power production. EnduroShield prevents etching, helps reduce soiling and debris buildup. At only two molecules thick, EnduroShield is optically clear, UV transparent. A one-time application provides up to 10 years of durability. To learn more about the coating, visit EnduroShield.com solar. You can request factory application or on-site by certified technicians like the team at Perfectly Clear. In Hawaii and for on-site applications in Western U.S., visit PerfectlyClear.glass or call Gary at 808-280-9422. That's 808-280-9422. And we're back. Those are our wonderful sponsors. Keep us on the tracks. Yes, uh, and we're here, luckily, with uh, Mr. David uh, Grins Grinspoon. Did I pronounce that correctly, David? Yes. Yep. David is an astrobiologist, award-winning science communicator, uh, has multiple publications under his belt, uh, everything from the New York Times, uh, Scientific America, a number of personally uh, written books, both uh, Lonely Planets and uh, Earth in Human Hands, which is kind of the focus of today's discussion, has worked with multiple space agencies across the globe, not only just NASA, but the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, and was posted the uh, inaugural chair of the Astrobiology Committee at the U.S. Library of Congress, where he studied human impact 
on Earth Systems, which is really what we want to talk about today. So we've got the right guy on the phone. <laughs> Hello, David. Welcome to the Solar Coaster. Hi. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk with you guys. Really do appreciate the time. Uh, so right away, I mean, the internet basically blew up a few months ago. We had a show, the UN Climate Reports, coming out again and showing that we were in a, a serious situation. And everybody was talking about it, but it seemed, the conversation seems to have died down a bit. From your point of view, how accurate were the reports and, and how bad is it out there? Well, the reports were as accurate as they can be given the state of our current science, which is imperfect just because climate is complex and climate modeling is difficult but clearly we know enough to be alarmed at the direction that our planet's climate is is moving in uh, largely as a result of our own provocations so you know it, it it's it's something to um to be very concerned about uh, and the fact that the models are imperfect and need improvement and and that there's wiggle room does not give me comfort at all not enough wiggle room that we we'd be able to seriously move the needle is what you're trying to say well but it's it's like saying like oh yeah i went to the doctor and they did these scans and they can't really tell if i've got you know terminal cancer or not so i'm not going to worry about it because i might not you know it's like the uh, the uncertainty doesn't uh, doesn't give any encouragement. You should probably assume that um, that it's as bad as it seems like it it, it really could be, and um, you know because you don't you don't have a choice to uh, just hit the reset button on the simulation or right. to another planet or something. It's like we're you know we're, we're all in this boat and there isn't really another one, and so let's. Uh, you know, let's assume the leak is as bad as it seems like it might be and, and start working on plugging it. Yeah, I, I like that analogy a lot. I, think, I, guess, I guess in that situation, what would I do? I would, I would do more research. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, right. Like, well, you know, the water seems like it's probably rushing in, but like, let's, uh, let's do another... Let's take do a closer look. Let's not, <laughs> let's not be unduly alarmed. You know? <laughs> right. So, David, let me let me let's let's uh, start out with this term astrobiologist. What what is an astrobiologist, and what do you do? And uh, is this something that uh, you know? Can you give us a sense of of what your area of expertise is? Sure. Astrobiology is the scientific study of the potential for the universe to make life in different places. Um, and since we know of only one planet with life. A lot of it involves the study of life on Earth from a sort of general perspective of trying to understand its its limits and its needs and its sort of overall qualities and requirements so that then we can map those onto uh-huh. our growing body of knowledge of other environments elsewhere in the universe. So just as it sounds, a hybrid of astro and bio there's a component that's studying the rest of the universe to try to understand what environments are like, and there's a component that's studying life on Earth and its its patterns. Um, so that's that's the field of astrobiology, and there are a lot of it's as it sounds, it's multidisciplinary, and there's a lot of different niches within it. And my own background is planetary science, uh, studying the planets, mostly of our solar system, but now the exoplanets too, the planets around other stars. And more specifically, I do climate modeling, 
a lot of people have heard about climate modeling in reference to uh, our overall topic uh, on this show, um, but uh, I do climate modeling mostly of other planets, mm-hmm. uh, and Earth-like planets, Venus and Mars and so forth, uh, just trying to understand in general how rocky planets uh, evolve with their climates and with the uh, specific goal of trying to understand um, what makes a planet habitable, friendly for life, and what makes a planet lose habitability and, and um, become unfriendly for life. So, um, and, and as a part of that, I've been involved in several spacecraft teams, uh, helping to design and send spacecraft to Venus and Mars and other places, and uh, you know, trying to get data to better support our uh, our knowledge of uh, the. Uh, the history of these worlds. This is uh, that. This is very exciting to talk with you. I mean, this this content area is is fascinating. There's a term that's popping up in my head that I've I've heard in kind of pop culture that uh, maybe you can bring some light to. It's called the the Goldilocks zone. Is, is this something that you you study? Is that what we're talking about here? This kind of this 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 range. Is that a, is that a term that you utilize in in, in, in your sure. area? Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that term in this context was first used by Lynn Margulis. The uh, biologist who co-founded co-founded the uh, Gaia hypothesis, uh, although it's not often attributed to her. But what what people mean by that is, you know, if we're thinking about habitability on planets, a lot of times we tie that to the presence of liquid water because you think of a planet like Mercury that's way too close to the sun for life. And why is it too close to the sun for life? Because it cannot have it's too hot for water. And then you think of a planet of where it's full of liquid water. So we think of this habitable zone, a distance from the sun where a rocky planet would have the right climate on its surface to support liquid water, which seems so essential to life, at least as we understand it. And that's where the idea of a Goldilocks zone comes in because, uh, you know, you're looking for a planet that's not too hot, not too cold, but just right, just like Goldilocks and the porridge and the the beds and all the other things <laughs> she found that were just right. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So along those along those lines, uh, uh, you know, some of our listeners may be asking, well, why is a solar panel show not really a solar panel show, but it'd be it'd be easy to make that mistake. <laughs> why is a solar panel show talking to an astrobiologist about the Goldilocks zone? So you know, the the the, the genesis of this conversation really was um, there. We have these now recently kind of more well defined, not perfectly defined. Uh, significant problems with our climate, with the, the, our home, with the Earth, and uh, there is a discussion about, you know, are there other options? Can we do? Can we? Can we possibly colonize something with an, another planet or another body or something within our solar system or elsewhere? Uh, you know, and what's the? What's just? I just just to get it right out of the gate right now. How likely is something like that, and in what time frame? I just want to understand the basic parameters of this conversation. Is it around the corner? Is it a hundred or a thousand years from now? I mean, I literally have no idea, David. So, yeah, a couple quick reactions. And one, this may seem a little pedantic, but some of us are starting to um, avoid the use of the word colonize. No, oh, yeah. And, and instead, we th- you can say settle other planets, say, or something like that. And I think you can, uh, living there in Hawaii uh, and many places around the world, you can understand why uh, that word... Um, it carries some, you know, some weight of, and some um, karma to it. <laughs> a certain, yeah. Certainly history with the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it triggers some unnecessary switches because... We're not talking about, if we talk about settling Mars, we're not talking about going to a place where there are 
previous civilizations that uh, you know we are going to exploit or conquer or as far as we know land. As far as, well, yeah, we talk about that. But, but you know, so, so uh, but that, that, that's a side note about terminology. But mm-hmm. as far as whether it's right around the corner, uh, it's not right around the corner. It may be, it's quite possible that within our lifetimes, um, people will attempt to go live on Mars, and they may be successful at that. I have a feeling their first attempt will not be successful. I think it's going to be harder than people think but that'll be you know there'll be uh instructive failures perhaps um like you know biosphere 2 you know that experiment mm-hmm. was a uh, was an instructive failure at trying to basically create a mars uh a settlement on earth <laughs> but anyways uh, and it turned out to be harder because uh enclosed biospheres are complex to create but right. um so, so i think attempts to go live there in some fashion um, are, are right around the corner, meaning, you know, in the coming decades. But as far as um, actual self-sustaining, um, you know, sort of Earth 2.0 or, uh, you know, people that are genuinely living in an independent way on another right. world, um, I certainly think that's possible by the end of the 21st century, but... I don't have a crystal ball uh, any more than anybody else who thinks about these things, but I certainly don't see it as right around the corner. So we're talking about maybe in the next decade or so, the ability to actually go and settle and perhaps take, take some trial uh, runs at living on another planet, but maybe in a century kind of time frame, having the ability to genuinely live there and sustain life and grow a community. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, those are crude estimates because uh, they're all that anybody can honestly make but um got it I, you know realistically now but i, I i'd say yeah I'm, I'm comfortable with those time frames yeah. got it so and, and 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 that would put us squarely outside of the time limits of uh what's happening with the un reports on climate change and having irreversible uh, negative impacts on our home here in, in on the earth right of course yeah i mean you know honestly anybody that thinks that uh sort of escaping to live on another world is a uh, any kind of a solution <laughs> or fallback or whatever to the problems we're having, and, you know, that we're creating here on Earth is, uh, you know, is dripping. It's dripping, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 what? what which... I, 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 I think that I think the, the studies of how we would do that are very useful for thinking about how we're going to live well on our own planet. There you go. And I, I'm yeah. all for that. I think it's actually essential to think about. How would we terraform Mars as a as a way to think about how we interact with planets in a different way? You know, we need to think um, uh, in all kinds of expansive ways about that because we're at a point now where we're challenged in how we're managing our own planet. But um, you know, so so I'm not going to say, oh, you know, we shouldn't even be talking about this because we got problems here. I think mm-hmm. we should be talking about this because we have problems here. <laughs> so one I one say, le- oh, provides a lens for the other because we're. Yeah, I wouldn't say, oh, there's nothing to worry about because we'll just go to Mars. That's <laughs> okay. So, so okay, great. So then, what kinds of uh, what what is there a unique uh, perspective that perhaps you or other astrobiologists bring to the conversation back home here on Earth about our climate, about how to manage our own? Can I call it a biosphere? Is that what the Earth's climate yeah. is? Is yeah. it a biosphere? Yeah. 
Yes, I think that, that that's a really good term, biosphere, because it reminds us that, I mean, every planet has a climate. A climate is simply the, um, you know, in a crude sense, it's the average surface temperature on a planet, really, uh, over time. And it's a result of incoming solar radiation and outgoing solar radiation, uh, outgoing uh, thermal radiation, a balance of those. Every mm-hmm. planet has a climate, but Earth's climate, unlike any other planet we know yet, is very much the product of a biosphere and the home of a biosphere. You cannot really separate um, the actions of life um, from the characteristics of our atmosphere and our planet. You know, it's so immersed, the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, the nitrogen cycle, life is part of how the planet works, including determining its climate. So yeah, Earth um, is a biosphere and um, and uh, so that, that, that's a great term to use. And as far as how astrobiologists think about climate, um, what might be different from the way everybody else thinks about it? Well, for one thing, because we do comparative planetology, we're very aware that Earth is, you know, Earth's climate is not the only climate. <laughs> right. And not only that, we think, um, and, and, and those comparisons between planets are very interesting. I mean, Venus has this runaway greenhouse effect. Venus is what happens if you just turn the greenhouse effect to max, you know, and Mars is sort of the opposite. What happens if you remove so much CO2 and so much solar radiation that your climate basically collapses? And so there's sort of extreme cases of the same physics that determine our climate. But the, the other thing I'd say about our perspective in astrobiology is that we have this deep time perspective. So um, we, uh, and it's true of geology too, of course, but we maybe even deeper because we think about before the Earth and after the Earth. But, right. um, <laughs> but you know, so we're very aware that Earth's climate has changed over time and it's gone through extremes and that the relationship between life and the climate is a long and complex one and that other species have changed the climate uh, not just humans. Humans are the first ones to be doing it, you know, in theory with some knowledge of what we're doing and therefore the ability to maybe do something about it. But uh, life has a long history of, uh, of changing the planet. Hmm. So assuming uh, assuming that, um, the, what, what is the term? We're, I'm hearing this term, uh, the, the um, Anthropocene, or the the period of time where man is influencing our our our, uh, our world. So assuming that that's that's happening here, um, what is the possibility, and what is our knowledge level to be able to uh, in, in, influence the climate change in a you know to reverse or combat climate change? I mean, do we have the power? as a human species from a technical perspective, and I suppose a policy perspective and a will perspective might be different, but um, do we have the capability to do that? How optimistic are you about that? Do you see roads forward to be able to uh, make a substantial, uh, substantive impact uh, in the time frame necessary? Great question. I'll start again with a pedantic, pedantic point, and don't hate me, but <laughs> instead, of, instead of saying man changing the planet, I like to say humanity. But, <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, or humans. <laughs> but anyways, enough uh, pedantry, if that's a word. Um, the, uh, the, um, the answer that I would give is that, you know, I have some, I guess, complex mix of optimism and pessimism. Because to answer your question in a straightforward way, we do, I believe, know enough to solve the problem. 
if knowing enough is simply like, could you and I and a bunch of engineers in a room come up with a plan that, you know, using technology that we know that would work if everyone implemented it, that would change our energy supply in such a way that um, we would stop uh, this dangerous tinkering with the climate? I'm certain the answer is yes. But, of course, the hard part is not just coming up with that plan with a bunch of smart people in a room, but getting uh, everyone around the world to agree to implement or at least agree enough people agree to do enough. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be everyone. Uh, and, 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 and that's the rub because we're not just talking about some technical solution. We're talking about uh, changing our culture and our economy and, you know, all these very difficult challenges. And for that reason, um, my optimism about the existence of solutions is tempered with um, wariness about uh, implementation. But what I honestly feel is that we are going to solve this problem that, you know, a hundred years from now will be completely post-fossil fuels. I think probably much less, but again, we're speaking in crude terms. Mm -hmm. And we'll look back on the present time and think, man, why did we take so long change because look at the damage we did so it's really you know i I think we're on the way to making these changes which it's just very very slow and it's frustrating to you know see this sort of slow motion um change occurring when you know that there's going to be damage and and just wish that that we could speed it up so so i'm confident that we we will get to the 22nd and 23rd centuries and we'll be post-fossil fuel and we won't i don't think we'll be extinct or uh, you know anything that drastic, but we will have done some damage and suffered some pain, and there'll be there'll be some level of of calamity um, uh, and suffering that uh, that would be avoided. So we've got we've got a road ahead, right? And it may be a tough road; it may take some time. Uh, from your perspective, and you said we have the knowledge as a as a species to be able to take action. Do you have a sense for some of the like the 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 really the large like substantial kind of moves we can make as a society from a technical perspective are there some things that I mean just to just to rattle off a handful of kind of buzzwords you know like carbon sequestration you know reforesting uh, uh, of the of the planet uh, you know should we be looking at the timeline of fusion I mean should we be looking at uh, SMRs and fission as a way to integrate uh, uh, renewables uh, I mean do you, uh, you know uh, wind, tidal, geothermal, all the different things that are out there, um, you know, uh, the, the electrification of transpo. I mean, I, what, what are some of the big, the biggest rocks in your mind for moving this yeah. conversation down the road as quickly as possible? Which, and, yeah, which, yeah, which technologies matter the most? <laughs> right, right. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, from a very crude 10,000-foot level, we need to change our energy supplies as quick as possible and stop burning fossil fuels. So how do we and that's not all we need to do because you mentioned some other things that don't fit in there. But that's you know that's the big one. And and um, the um, you know main way to do that you know is already in progress, which is switching to renewables. And renewables are getting cheaper and cheaper. So you know obviously solar and wind, and then along with that um, storage, um, batteries, other you know non-battery. Storage of all, you know, there's all these very clever schemes. You know, you pump water uphill, you compress air in underground caves. You know, just moving ahead and researching and implementing the things that have already been researched with 
with all of that. And, you know, and, the, and there's good news there, as you guys are well aware. know more about this than I do, I think. But, you know, that, that renewables are getting cheaper um, and more, more sense for more and more people and more and more communities to implement. So that's, you know, that's sort of a no-brainer, although, you know, there's a lot to be done in that category. And that's, that's a big, big part of it. Um, some of these other ideas... Um, you know, reforestation, obviously a great idea. Um, to what extent can that, uh, you know, no, no, that alone isn't enough, but maybe there's no one thing that's enough, but reforestation. And then, um, uh, you know, fusion is one of these digital game changers. So in, in my book, uh, Earth and Human Hands, um, that dealt with some of these questions, one thing I didn't try to do was make specific predictions of the 21st, 22nd, 23rd century, but tried to talk in general terms about see coming and part of that is because I, I did this project that uh, a brief history of the future where I looked at predictions of the future made in the past mm-hmm. um, prediction now nobody gets it right even all these really smart people they get some things right but what they don't see coming are the game changers we, we, we tend to extrapolate the future in a linear way and you can't see the game changers coming so I also have this list of um, uh-huh. you know potential big <clears throat> game changers and one of them is, uh, or a couple of them are things you mentioned, but one, one is fusion power, which has always been, uh, you know, 30 years in the future, uh, you know, since I was, <laughs> since I was the a kid. 60s, yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, there's nothing physically impossible about fusion. Like, somebody could, could figure that out. And so we could be in a situation where there is really cheap, uh, non-polluting, um, abundant energy, um, and, and, and that would change everything, you know, not just obviously, you know, we, we, we could electrify uh, transportation and all, all this other stuff, but, but you could desalinate water and you could, you know, and um, so I, we certainly shouldn't wait around for a magic bullet like that. We should do everything we can with, with what we have. But there are these potential game changers that could really, um, the 21st century, um, very, very different from, uh, and, 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 you know, another one is AI, artificial which um, right there's all po- there's all kinds of possible dark scenarios that we've heard a lot about but you can also imagine you know bright scenarios fleets of drones flying around and planting trees and you know noticing the soil conditions and uh, you know like uh, sort of this like sentient reforestation and yeah there, there, there are a lot of ways in which um, mm. some of these things that are just beyond the horizon can dramatically change the game um, so um, that's a long-winded answer. To your no, I like it. I like it. It kind of it kind of brings yeah. us into uh, one of the con- one of the questions that Jay brought up, and we want to ask you. It, it's a uh, the, the we started talking about some of the solutions here, right? Some of the potential technical and kind of organizational solutions to to uh, combating climate change. Uh, one that kind of kind of bridges into your neck of the woods, so to speak, is this notion of space-based solar. So I wonder if you've heard about that. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that at all, it, it, it and, and and if you if you have it, I don't know. There's a couple of conversations and articles coming out from I think China and Japan mm-hmm. were the two primary ones, and the discussion effectively is you know launching a uh, a, a a system to create a solar array in space. Uh, collecting energy in a much more efficient and you know basically perpetual time frame, and, and then beaming that down and, and, and collecting it on, on, on the planet. Right? Have you heard about this notion? Is, does it sound like science fiction to you? Does it sound possible? Any thoughts at all? Yes. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Not only have I heard about it, it's an idea I've been aware of for a very long time. 
Um, there was a guy um, that I'm sure you guys have heard of if you've been researching this, who was sort of a, a hero of mine when I was in high school, named Gerard O'Neill, um, who was a physicist at Princeton, who I think was maybe, I don't know if he invented this idea, but he um, had all these ideas about building space colonies at Earth's Lagrangian point, moving heavy industry off of Earth to preserve Earth's environment. And um, part of his vision was uh, space-based solar power, just as you described it. And I actually, um, I went to college in 1977, and I wrote my college application essay um, about the possibility of solving the then the 1970s energy crisis. Yep. <laughs> about, and it wasn't even about solving climate change, it was about solving the energy crisis, what we called it then. We're using space-based solar power, and this was in the 1970s. Um, so, and, and I got into college, so the essay must have been okay. But, um, but yeah, so this is something that's been, I've been aware of, and it's, you know, it's again, it's one of these things that, that could be a game changer if it works. Um, then imagine that that we're beaming down um, power from space. And, and, and you know, as, as you guys know, and anybody who's thought about this knows, that, I mean, there's some big advantages to doing solar power in space. That, you know, it's never cloudy. The sun is brighter because it's not attenuated by the atmosphere at all. And if you yep. have a network of these around the globe, then, uh, you know, then, then part of your network's always illuminated. Um, most of it is. And um, so the question is, how do you get it down? the earth and there are these ideas of microwave um, beams and some potential problems with that um, that uh, I guess people are have been aware of for a while and are working on and it's another you know like I said about fusion there's nothing about it that's physically impossible uh, it's a big engineering challenge um, and there's aspects of it that people won't like because it's centralized big industrial facilities which is sort of the opposite of some people love, you know, fall and wind, because you can imagine everybody, you know, sort of decentralized and everybody's making their own power and you're not, you're not dependent on the man or the system or the big, <laughs> you know, government or big business to do it. And so it's, you know, it's sort of big industrial scale solar power from space. But on the other hand, again, if it works, um, then we're not burning anything. And uh, we have this essentially... You know, once you set it up, uh, essentially free, huge source of power. So um, that is something that um, I guess, you know, when people ask me, how are we going to solve this problem? I don't run, I don't jump at first to like, hey, the, you know, space-based solar power will beam it down from orbit because it seems a little off in the future to me. And there are some problems, as far as I know, you guys might be more off on this than me. There's some problems that haven't been fully solved involving uh possible danger of the beams yep <laughs> birds or other creatures or if it if it uh if you lose the track your track and the beam goes off do you fry a city or something or you know yes. I, there's, sure you <laughs> those conversations have all make, happened yeah <laughs> make sure you turn it off <laughs> but uh you know so uh, there are difficulties and it's a challenge but it's uh, it's one of these things that you could you know if you could flash to the world of 200 years from now um you know it's going to be very different in some ways, and there's some alternative futures in which that's what's different, is that there's no problem with energy because it's all just being beamed down from space. 
So I, I, I don't rule it out. Well, I like the optimism. I'll tell you that. We don't always get optimistic uh, conversations on, on so, air. So, and uh, I appreciate some of the optimism I'm hearing here. So yeah. what about the commercialization of space travel? Uh, do you, Are you uh, uh, you know excited by what's been happening over the last five, ten years with uh, SpaceX and with, uh, what, what is it, uh, Blue Horizons? Is that is that, is that one? Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, the the, the Blue, Blue brands. Origin Blue Origin. Is, Got it. Yeah. And yeah. SpaceX, and then there's uh, Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a few other. Those are the major players, I guess. Um, yeah, I am excited about it. You know, I have I have some caveats and cautions about it, um, but but it is exciting. I mean, I think it's good that there are more players in the game. Uh, yeah, I think there's an important role for NASA. There's an important role for government space agencies, uh, and it's not going away. But I don't think they need to have a monopoly. And um, it almost feels like NASA needed a kick in the butt a little bit um, there right. in the um, early 21st century. And in a way, it's getting it because, like, all of a sudden there's all this competition, not just from these companies, but also internationally, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Indian Space Agency, the Europeans, the there's a lot of more people getting into the game, and I think I think that's good um, for space and for for humanity to not just have um, one entity dominating it. Um, and there are obvious areas where NASA should keep um, maintain the lead. Uh, you know, things like deep space exploration, the mission to Pluto that was so amazing in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no obvious commercial reason. To do that it's just we do it because it's exploration and it's valuable for society um but on the other hand you know running people up to orbit and back and running equipment up to orbit and back that's basically a, a bus company or a shipping company uh, it's a little more <laughs> challenging but it's, that's what it is sure. so why not have why not have companies that take that over the government doesn't need to do that um and so it's exciting and, and you know i uh I have some mixed feelings just because um, I do worry about um, some of the, you know, what will the values be if people are just trying to make money in space? Will they still um, care about, you know, the, the, some of the principles we have of environmental protection and things like that? Uh, are people going to say, well, we don't care about that. We just want to make money. Uh, and, 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 you know, the other thing is, you worry that, uh, or one worries, some people worry, I worry, that there's a, there's an elitist aspect, that if you're a millionaire, you can go to space, and nobody else can. And that's sort of too bad, but if that's, if that's the way it is. But on the other hand, I really believe, as some people have stated, that the more people go into space, the better it is for humanity. Because that overview effect, that perspective of the Earth, from orbit is very powerful and really creates the kind of consciousness we need to solve these problems we're talking about, where one understands that the Earth is a unity and that national boundaries are artificial. And, you know, that this, this cosmic consciousness that you really do get from the space experience, if that becomes available to a lot more people, I think that's a good thing. And the, the plan, supposedly, of these companies is once they start bringing customers into space, that uh, then it's going to get cheaper. It's going to get cheaper, and then you won't have to be a millionaire to go. And um, it'll be like 
a vacation to Europe or something. Um, and if that happens, um, then we really are in sort of a new evolutionary phase almost where the experience of space is, uh, is opened up to, to the masses um, in at least to some degree in a way that it never has been. And um, that's kind of a, a hopeful and promising prospect. I, I, I certainly get that. And it's, I'm, I'm hearing that conversation more and more out there that this uh, ability, well, the first time that humanity had that, that there, these pictures came out, was it back in the 60s or when, when was it that the first image mm-hmm. of the earth came out? And it just kind of, uh, it, it, it creates this kind of awe in, hum, in, in, in a human being. And it's something that... Yeah, it's actually 50 years ago um, this, um, this year. 50 um, years ago this year. Uh, and I hear Earthrise image. I'm, I'm going Earthrise. to a symposium. I'm going to a symposium next week at the Library of Congress called Earthrise, dedicated to the 50th anniversary of that image. So it's a good time to be talking about that. Sounds like you could be a correspondent for the Solar Coaster in that. Maybe you can give us some feedback on it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, this has been really a, a great uh, you know discussion, uh, David. We can't thank you enough. Yeah. And don't don't forget to tell us about your book here, because I I haven't read it but i found just the title fascinating and then i started reading some reviews and i think i'm gonna have to go dig it out (laughs) yeah well thanks uh it's great talking to you guys and and earth and human hands is simply um my attempts to describe the anthropocene which is something you guys mentioned that the geological time of, of humans becoming a major force of change on the planet from an astrobiology perspective so from the perspective of um sort of planetary evolution and looking at all the major changes our planet has gone through, what is this transition that's going through right now as a result as a result of humans? How does that look from the standpoint of big planetary history? You know, what's really new and different about our time from the planet's perspective? And then how does that deep space and deep time perspective inform our ability to think constructively about our situation on this planet and about our, our future choices. So that's that's what Earth and Human Hands is about. Well, I am, for one, looking forward to reading it, uh, genuinely. <laughs> that sounds uh, amazing, exactly the kind of information we're, we're looking to learn about. Uh, everybody, this has been uh, David Grinspoon. Uh, you can check him out at, can I say, funkyscience.net. This is one of your websites, right, David, that people can get yeah, to know you better? Yep. Uh, I would really encourage everyone to take a take a look at this great website to read uh, to get a hold of that book. Where can um, where can our listeners get a hold of your book if they'd like to purchase one right now? Well, if you go to funkyscience.net, you can find you know all the usual uh, sources, including one that's owned by the guy, one of the guys who run for those big, big space companies. <laughs> um, but <laughs> where wherever fine books are sold. Got it, got it, got it. Well, thanks again, David. Really appreciate it. Uh, aloha. If you're ever out here in Maui, please do stop in and join us in the studio, and we'll show you around town. Yeah, thanks much. Well, I would love to uh, take advantage of that offer, so hopefully I can. And uh, wonderful talk with you guys. Okay. Definitely, definitely. Thanks.